The Senate election in Georgia is headed to a runoff, and once again, it may be the race that determines the balance of power on Capitol Hill. It's Thursday, November 10th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, President Biden is pleased with the Democrats' performance in the midterms. This is supposed to be a red wave. You guys, you were talking about us losing 30 to 50 seats, and this was going to... No, that's not going to happen. Also this hour, the Massachusetts Republican Party takes stock after losses in every statewide race on Tuesday. I think the Republican Party is underwater and, and will be for years to come right now. And while world leaders meet in Egypt to discuss dealing with climate change, the tipping points that could lead to abrupt impacts may already be here. In sports, the Celtics win sunny and in the 60s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. A rare November hurricane made landfall in Florida overnight. Hurricane Nicole came ashore just south of Vero Beach as a Category 1 storm with maximum sustained winds of 75 miles an hour. The National Hurricane Center says Nicole has weakened to a tropical storm and is bringing heavy rain and gusty winds across central Florida. Kevin Guthrie, Florida's Emergency Management Director, says the state is prepared. We're already starting to have significant beach erosion along the East Coast. We, um, I've talked to a couple of emergency management directors who are having washovers and you know, potential uh, washouts of roadways, as well as uh, breaches of dunes. People are evacuating in several parts of the state, including some residents on the Gulf Coast, hard hit by Hurricane Ian in September. Nicole has left more than 170,000 people without power, and hundreds of flights are canceled in and out of Orlando's main airport. It's the first hurricane to make landfall in the U.S. in November in nearly 40 years. Meanwhile, state election officials are suspending important reporting deadlines in Florida for counties affected by now Tropical Storm Nicole. And Pierce Ashley Lopez reports officials say it's an effort to make sure votes are counted accurately. Florida Secretary of State Cord Bird has issued an emergency order that pushes back the deadline for county election supervisors to submit the first set of unofficial election returns to Monday. This applies to the 45 counties that are under a state of emergency due to the storm. Bird says in a statement that some election officials have had to close their offices and suspend canvassing boards as Nicole begins what is expected to be a long, sprawling slog across the state. The order also gives voters until Saturday to correct their mail ballots as well as prove that they are eligible to vote if they voted using a provisional ballot. The deadline was previously Thursday in those counties. Ashley Lopez, NPR News. And voters in Arizona are watching their state go into the third day of results today. NPR's Jimena Bustillo reports record-breaking day of ballot drops are contributing to the drawn-out count. After Wednesday night, officials in Maricopa County still had 400,000 ballots left to count. Election officials are estimating it will take until Friday evening to record 95% of the county's vote. Maricopa County has the largest share of voters in the state. So far, the ballots of over 1.9 million people have been counted across Arizona. The nationally watched governor's race between Democrat Katie Hobbs and Republican Carrie Lake and Senate race between GOP candidate Blake Masters and incumbent Democrat Mark Kelly remain too close to call. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Phoenix. The federal government is set to release the Consumer Price Index this morning, the latest consumer inflation figures that will show whether inflation is finally easing. U.S. futures contracts are trading higher. You're listening to NPR News. 
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The transition of power in Massachusetts is underway. Governor-elect Maura Healey met with Governor Charlie Baker yesterday. She says her first order of business is to put a transition team together ahead of her taking office in early January. You've heard me talk a lot about team through this campaign. And I know that we are going to look to uh, assemble the best possible team uh, to meet the challenges we face and to deliver and to deliver for people. Lieutenant Governor-elect Kim Driscoll will lead that transition team. Governor Baker promised that he and Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito will do all they can to ensure a smooth transition. Baker says he'll be sad when he leaves office in less than two months. I will really miss the opportunity to talk to people about their hopes and their dreams and their problems and what we can do to fix them. And I think anybody who has an ounce of public service in their bones knows exactly what I'm talking about. Baker has not said what he plans to do when he leaves office. Undocumented residents of Massachusetts are celebrating the survival of a law that would allow them to apply for driver's licenses. WBR's Simone Rios reports on the victory of Ballot Question 4. Anna is undocumented. We're only using her first name because she fears immigration enforcement. Despite not having a license, she's been driving to work and to get her kids to school for two years. She was sitting in her car in New Bedford yesterday when she learned the effort to repeal the driver's license law had been defeated. This is very good news for us, Anna said. What I'm going to do now is go and get my license. And now she won't have to drive in constant fear of getting pulled over. The law goes into effect in July. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. All police officers in Lowell are getting body cameras. The Bureau of Justice Assistance is giving the Lowell Police Department almost half a million dollars for the equipment. A small group of officers is already testing cameras. There's no timeline yet for when the rest of the department will start using cameras. The Museum of Fine Arts Boston will begin taking visitors behind the scenes of its art restoration. The MFA hopes its new conservation center will serve as a place of research, training, and inspiration. WBR's Lauren Williams has more on the center, which opens today. The work of preserving and restoring old masterpieces is laborious and often done behind closed doors. Rona Macbeth, the Director of Conservation and Scientific Research at the MFA, says the museum has thought for over two decades about how to change that. What we really want people to walk away with is a a new sort of awareness and understanding of what art conservation in the context of a museum is. And we also very much want people to have the intimate experience of looking at an artwork with a conservator. The Conservation Center will host talks on conservation basics, tutorials on technical imaging, and more. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lauren Williams. It's 7.07. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, with Handel's Messiah and its Hallelujah Chorus, November 25th through 27th at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org, and AE Events, 
Design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. The Celtics beat the Detroit Pistons 128 to 112 last night at the Garden. The Seas will play again tomorrow when they host the Denver Nuggets. Tonight at the Garden, the Bruins skate with the Calgary Flames. Sunny today with a high in the mid to upper 60s, partly cloudy overnight with temperatures around 50, mostly cloudy tomorrow with rain moving in after sunset, high near 70, rainy on Saturday. It's 46 degrees in Boston at 7.08. WBUR supporters include Netflix presenting Is That Black Enough for You? From writer and director Elvis Mitchell comes a love letter to black cinema of the 70s, celebrating the films and talent that changed the game on Netflix November 11th. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldin. Republicans may yet take charge of one or both houses of Congress, but to President Biden, the relatively small change amounts to a vindication. This is supposed to be a red wave. You guys, you were talking about us losing 30 to 50 seats, and this was going to... No, we're, that's not going to happen. Some analysts did foresee huge Republican gains on Tuesday, although our colleagues at NPR talked of a range of possibilities. The mixed results leave Biden's White House with a better chance of governing and Biden's party with a better chance of gaining ground again in 2024. We're joined now by NPR White House correspondent Tamara Key. Thanks for being here, Tam. Yep. Good morning. Good morning. So there are still a number of races that haven't been called, but it looks quite possible President Biden will spend his final two years in office with at least a GOP-controlled House of Representatives. What did he say about how he's going to approach the next two years? He said that the message he took from the election was that the American people want him to work together with Congress. And to that end, he plans to invite leaders over to the White House later this month. But I have to say he was also unapologetic. Asked what he would change about his approach, Biden said this. I'm not going to change anything in any fundamental way. He said many of the policies Democrats in Congress passed in recent months that they'd been campaigning on haven't had a chance to take effect yet. And he said he would defend that legislation against any efforts to roll it back by exercising his veto pin if it gets to that point. Mm. And he said he would also be open to working with Republicans. But I have to say that sounded like just Biden being on brand rather than actually predicting a great period of bipartisan productivity. He also wished Republicans luck if they plan to spend the next two years doing investigations, either of his son Hunter or uh, more serious policy pursuits like the withdrawal from Afghanistan, and certainly if they were to try to pursue impeachment. Okay, so this idea of bipartisanship, I mean, not the norm these days, right, Tam? So how is he going to get anything done in the next two years? There were a couple of bipartisan successes in the last couple of years. If Democrats are able to hang on to the Senate, then Biden would at least be able to keep getting judges confirmed, which is something he has already done at a record clip. With narrow margins, Democrats in the last couple of years already had Biden scaling back his ambitions, and he had to do some things through executive actions like student loan forgiveness, which is getting hung up in court, as often happens with executive actions. So you could expect to see more more of that. Republicans, if they do win majorities, will have very narrow ones and will likely face their own internal battles. There are just a few things that truly have to get done, like funding the government. And Biden in his press conference yesterday predicted that those ultimately will be bipartisan efforts. They kind of have to be. Okay, so the big question after a midterm is whether the president plans to run for re-election. So how did Biden answer this time? 
Well, he answered it in a couple of different ways. He reiterated that he does plan to run and that the midterms didn't affect that. He was asked about the possible rivals of Donald Trump or Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Who do you think would be the tougher competitor, Ron DeSantis or former President Trump? And how is that factoring into your decision? It'll be fun watching them take on each other. Is there anything else that stood out from this press conference? Yeah, that's the thing about press conferences is reporters can ask about all different kinds of topics. And one asked about Elon Musk and whether he is a threat to national security, especially Mm -hmm. with his acquisition of Twitter, with funding some of it from foreign governments, including Saudi Arabia. And Biden chose his words very carefully. He said that he thinks Elon Musk's cooperation and or technology relationships with other countries is, quote, worth being looked at, whether or not he's doing anything inappropriate, Biden added. And he's not suggesting that, he said, but that it is worth looking at it. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith, thank you so much. You're welcome. Some candidates linked to former President Trump went down in flames on Tuesday. Others are struggling as the votes are still being counted, and some Republicans have lost no time in assigning blame. Jonah Goldberg is here. He is editor-in-chief of The Dispatch and a regular guest on this program. Welcome back. Always great to be here. What is the opportunity that some Republicans may see in the disappointment from Tuesday? Uh, the the opportunity is to finally uh, divorce itself from the essentially the cult of personality of of Donald Trump, and you're seeing that happen in. Uh, well, we, we should be careful. There have been plenty of times where it seemed like this was the moment where. Uh, Donald Trump was going to fade away. Roughly one a day. Yes, Um, yes, it's true. Go on. Yeah. So that said, um, the number of people and the scale of people uh, who formerly carried more water for Trump than Gunga Din, um, who are now feeling free to speak more openly about his negative negative effect on the party, um, is really remarkable, particularly coming out of sort of the broader Murdoch Fox News world. The New York Post is vicious on this. The Wall Street Journal is uh, hammer and tongs. And uh, various Fox hosts are just basically all saying, you know, all eyes are turning to DeSantis, it feels. I, and, I think the, uh, the, the, it, New York po- the New York Post uh, headline, their front page headline was a picture of Ron DeSantis and the word D-Future. Is that right? That's right. And then today's cover, I believe, is Donald Trump as Humpty Dumpty falling off a wall. Oh, okay. That's going right at it. Uh, But I should be clear here. um, Mara Eliason, our uh, national political correspondent, referred to Trump in the past as an 800-pound gorilla who perhaps is now a 700-pound gorilla, which is still a lot of pounds. Oh, for sure. And uh, in part because of the terrible way primaries work, or really the terrible existence of primaries at all, um, all Trump still needs is a significant plurality of votes. So it's it's, it's still hard to say he couldn't win the nomination. It's just very easy to say he couldn't win the presidency um, if he got the nomination. You know, the, the same collective action problem that dominated the Republican primaries in 2016 still exists. It's it's what the, some game theorists call belling the cat. It is in the interest of all the mice to put a bell on the cat. It is not in the interest of any individual mouse to be the one to put the bell on the cat. And um, and so we have you still have that that problem. But the fact that ro- the red wave actually happened in Florida and nowhere else 
sets up Ron DeSantis as a way to say he can deliver victory where Trump basically has only delivered defeat because the most prominently Trump-backed candidates either lost or are look like they're going to lose and certainly and most did b quite badly. And, um, and everyone knows that that was Trump's influence. Also, it's going to start to trickle out that one of the reasons why uh, Republicans all vote on Election Day is because Donald Trump basically threw in the garbage pile the Republican vote by mail operation, which was once better than the Democrats yeah. not very long ago. Yeah. And, you know, so like both on policy and on issues and on framing and also just the, the general assumption that sounding like a jerk, sounding like where the cruelty is the point is good politics. Uh, it's dawning on some people that that is actually a bad way to approach politics even for even for Donald Trump, but certainly for his imitators. Well, let's talk about the politics here briefly coming forward, because Republicans seem likely still to capture the House with a narrow majority. They have said they want investigations of the Biden administration, maybe some impeachments, maybe a lot of impeachments. Who knows? Biden was asked about that yesterday. He responded, if they want to waste their time, fine. He's going to work on what people want. Which of them has the politics right? So this is, again, part of the problem is that, and, and it's just too soon to tell whether we're actually that this stuff is going to get better the incentive structure on the right is to do fan service and infotainment for the base the incentive structure on big chunks of the left is the same and uh the 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 base of the republican party is going to want to see hunter hunter biden's laptop and hunter biden's life dissected like he was a medical specimen in a 19th century medical school. And um, that's going to happen. Um, or at least it's going to be a very strong effort to do that. Mm -hmm. Moreover, just neither party can get anything done if the Republicans control one one branch of Congress, which looks likely. And so it's going to be gridlock for, for a long time. I think that Biden probably will have the politics on his side. I just don't know that he is up to exploiting them in a way that makes him a good candidate for 20 for 2024. Okay, Jonah, it's always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Jonah Goldberg is editor-in-chief of The Dispatch and a regular guest here. Voters in Wisconsin are keeping Republican Ron Johnson in the Senate and keeping Democrat Tony Evers as governor. This suggests at least some Wisconsin voters split their tickets dramatically. Evers has battled the entrenched Republican legislature in his state. Ron Johnson said the January 6th attack on the Capitol was, by and large, peaceful protests. Text messages show one of his aides was involved in promoting fake presidential electors. And once again, both represent Wisconsin, whose voters include Nessa Jones. Maybe it is a good thing that it's split. Maybe it'll give them an opportunity to show that they can work together. Maybe. Or it is all going to just blow up. <laughs> Eric Carlson also has doubts. No, all they'll do is gaslight everybody and tell everybody we're going to do this, and either party never does anything, and then at the end of the day, uh, everybody just gets mad at each other. All they do is divide the people. But Taryn Schuster told NPR's David Shaper she's mostly optimistic. With Gen Z coming up, you know, we're going to all younger crowds are going to get everybody on the same page, but also pessimistic because it's like, well, we haven't been able to do it so far. What says we're going to do it in the future? It's fair to say you're more optimistic about your generation than you are mine? Um, <laughs> maybe a little bit. I'm hopeful. Yeah, I, I guess I'm hopeful. Some Wisconsin voters after this week's election.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBOR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, experts say we're likely past the point where the planet could avoid dangerous levels of warming, even as world leaders meet in Egypt to address climate change. It's 720. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by an unlikely story bookstore and cafe. Celebrity and royal biographer Andrew Morton with his new book, The Queen, November 19th, and unlikelystory.com. Loomis Sales, where portfolio managers, research analysts, and traders work together to help clients reach their financial goals. Learn more at loomissales.com. And German International School Boston. Sign up for preschool and kindergarten open house on November 19th at gisbos.org. I'm Peter O'Dowd. Re-elected Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is often seen as a possible contender for the Republican nomination in 2024. Now, thanks to the overwhelming support of the people of Florida, we not only won election, we have rewritten the political map. Our election coverage continues next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Sunny today with a high near 67. There may be some gusty winds tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 50. Right now it's 46 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Universal Pictures with She Said, starring Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan as the New York Times journalists whose investigation helped ignite a movement based on actual events, only in theaters November 18th, rated R. From LifeLock by Norton, Reminding consumers that sensitive information sent online may not always be secure. Learn more at lifelock.com NPR. From Culligan Water, since 1936, committed to providing cleaner and safer filtered water on demand while working to help reduce the number of plastic bottles going into landfills. Learn more at culligan.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Falden. There's a slogan for the global climate negotiations underway in Egypt right now. Keep 1.5 alive, meaning keep global warming from exceeding 1.5 degrees Celsius. Here's United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres speaking at the negotiations. But that 1.5 degree goal is on life support and the machines are rattling. The world is on track to hit almost double that amount of warming by the end of the century. And that could set off some abrupt changes with dire consequences. Lauren Summer and Rebecca Hersher are here from NPR's Climate Desk to talk about three of those so-called tipping points. Hi, both of you. Hi. Hey. So what kind of changes could the world see if world leaders don't find a way to rein in climate change at these talks? So we're talking about big global changes, and here's one of them. Okay, so what is that? It sounds like a river, Lauren. It is a river, um, but it's on top of an ice sheet. That's the sound of the Greenland ice sheet melting this summer. The temperatures were warm, and, you know, where I was standing, the meltwater was kind of gushing across the top of the ice, forming this river. And, you know, Greenland has lost ice overall for 26 years in a row now. And as the climate gets hotter, that ice, it's disappearing faster and faster and faster. Okay, so explain why it's accelerating so quickly. 
Yeah, one way to understand that is actually to think about the other big ice sheet, which is in mm-hmm. Antarctica. It's also melting faster and faster. And the reason is because at the edges, the ice extends off the land and kind of floats on the ocean. And those parts are melting the fastest. They're cracking and breaking apart. It's it's kind of like a pie, actually. If the crust falls off, that gooey center of the pie slowly starts to ooze out. So the more the crust falls apart at the edges, the more the whole pie falls apart. Well, you make it sound appetizing, but it's quite terrible. <laughs> okay, so Rebecca, what happens if it all falls apart? So sea levels will rise dramatically if that happens, like 10 feet or more, which is obviously terrifying. And The millions of people who live on coastlines are not prepared for that right now. They need to build infrastructure to protect themselves from that kind of massive sea level rise. And to do that, they need to know when that will happen, right? Will it be hundreds of years and a thousand years? Scientists are still working on that. Ian Jockin is a glaciologist at the University of Washington. We don't use a lot of infrastructure from a thousand years ago. We do have quite a bit of infrastructure from a hundred years ago. Um, So just the scale that this collapse occurs on is quite important for how we're able to adapt to it. And to be clear, sea level rise is already happening from all this melting. It's already causing problems. But once this collapsing process gets going, you know, it's hard to stop. One study found that even if humans stop emitting greenhouse gases, Greenland's melt would still cause 10 inches of sea level rise around the world. Wow. Are there other abrupt changes that humans will need to prepare for if the Earth heats up beyond 1.5 degrees Celsius? Yeah, there are a bunch. Um, One big one is permanently frozen ground in the Arctic will thaw. Now, that is already happening in some places, which is really bad news, because when the ground thaws, it sinks and it buckles, and houses and roads and runways at airports, they all get ruined. It's really disruptive. And it's speeding up. So I talked to one scientist at the University of Colorado Boulder. Her name is Merit Turetsky. She's been studying this permafrost, this permanently frozen ground, for decades. We are saying goodbye to the permafrost in field sites where I've been monitoring permafrost change for 20 years now. And as the Earth heats up even more, you know, gets to that 1.5 marker and exceeds it potentially, very large sections of permafrost are expected to thaw pretty quickly, like over the course of a decade or two. And that's going to happen in Alaska and Canada and Northern Europe and in Russia. Okay, so widespread problems in the Arctic that would be caused, but would it affect people living further south? Yes, absolutely. Because Permafrost also stores huge amounts of carbon, twice as much as is in the atmosphere right now. And as it thaws, it releases some of that carbon. So it's like this horrifying loop, right? Global warming causes the ground to thaw, which causes extra greenhouse gas emissions, which makes the Earth heat up even faster, and around and around and around we go. And there's one more tipping point that's right on the horizon. Um, And it's a tough one for the scientists who study it. I mean, I've got a 15-year-old daughter, and I... It's a challenge to think about what the world would be like when she's my age. That's Eric Franklin. He's a professor at the University of Hawaii at Manoa who studies coral reefs. Coral reefs, and we know they've been struggling because of climate change. Yeah, exactly. I mean, corals are very sensitive to heat. The oceans are getting hotter, and they get hit with these marine heat waves that cause the corals to bleach, you know, where they turn this kind of ghostly white color. Corals can bounce back from bleaching, but not if they get hit repeatedly, and that's when the whole ecosystem collapses. So what's the forecast for coral reefs? If the world continues on the track that it's on, do they all just disappear? 
Yeah, I mean, the world could see right now 2.8 degrees Celsius of warming by the end of the century. So that's a level where 99% of corals are not expected to survive, Franklin says. The coming decades will bring, I think, unprecedented change for both these reef systems and humanity in general. That's because half a billion people depend on coral reefs for food or their livelihoods. But if the world can stay at that 1.5 degrees Celsius mark, you know, at least some corals have a chance. So you both have described some pretty terrifying consequences with these tipping points. So let's talk about the climate negotiations underway in Egypt. Is it looking like world leaders can work out a deal to limit warming to that level? No. You know, right now it's not looking that way. Leaders of two of the biggest greenhouse gas emitters, China and India, they aren't attending the talks. And there's a new push to develop fossil fuels, actually, because of the war in Ukraine disrupting supplies. A key thing to keep in mind, though, is that every tenth of a degree matters. You know, every little bit helps to stave off these abrupt changes, you know, or if we can't, at least delay them so humans have time to get prepared. That's Lauren Summer and Rebecca Hersher from NPR's Climate Desk. Thanks to you both. Thanks. Thanks. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, we look at how much more a Thanksgiving dinner will cost families this year. It's 729. A quick reminder that you're part of the WBUR community. That's why you're invited to our next virtual community advisory board meeting. It's next Wednesday from 4 to 6.30 p.m. Details at wbur.org slash openmeetings. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. Museum of Russian Icons, presenting Artists for Ukraine, transforming ammo boxes into icons. More at museumofrussianicons.org. And Boston Ballet's As Anticipated, with works by choreographer William Forsythe, including a world premiere, now through November 13th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The U.S. military's top general says he believes Russia and Ukraine have each suffered more than 100,000 troop casualties since Russia invaded more than eight months ago. As NPR's Greg Myrie reports, General Mark Milley predicts the war will ultimately end through negotiations. General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, says an outright victory on the battlefield may, quote, not be achievable through military means, and therefore you need to turn to other means. His remarks are the latest sign the U.S. is nudging Ukraine toward the possibility of peace talks. However, Ukraine is demanding that Russia first withdraw all its troops. Both Ukraine and Russia have been reluctant to provide detailed casualty figures on their own forces. U.S. officials periodically offer broad estimates. Milley did not break down the military casualties between those killed and those wounded. He put the Ukrainian civilian death toll at around 40,000. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Kyiv.
More than 200,000 homes and businesses in Florida are without power this morning because of Nicole. It came ashore this morning near Vero Beach as a Category 1 hurricane. It's since been downgraded to a tropical storm. State and local officials are warning of flash flooding, storm surge, and beach erosion. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Researchers at Dartmouth say the effects of climate change have cost the world trillions of dollars since the early 1990s. Mara Hoplamazian reports on a study that focuses on the extreme heat caused by climate change. Dartmouth PhD candidate Chris Callahan led the research, and he says it shows climate change impacts aren't just a future projection. Warming has already altered our global economy in noticeable ways. Heat waves can reduce crop yields, reduce productivity, and make us sick, Callahan says. But they also have a host of more subtle effects that can still cost a lot of money. People fall off ladders more frequently and otherwise injure themselves at work more frequently when it's hot. People honk their horns at each other more when it's hot. Major League Baseball umpires get calls wrong more when it's hot. Callahan says lower-income nations, which are disproportionately warmer and have generally contributed less towards global warming, are hurt much more by climate change-fueled heat. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Mara Hoplamazian. Some Boston city councilors say school buses aren't reliable enough, and that's having real consequences. Councilor Julia Mejia says too many buses show up late or don't come at all. She says that can lead to learning loss for students and financial loss for families. Families who are low-wage workers and hourly workers are feeling the financial impact of this because then they have to request time off from work. And that is food that uh, they are taking off of their table because they have to pay for an Uber or miss work. Mejia wants to pay drivers more and see a more competitive bidding process for the city's school bus contract. The council will hold a hearing on the issue later today. The Cayman Islands is getting a new district attorney, and he'll be the first Democrat to hold the position in decades. Robert Galaboy's won the election Tuesday. Republican DA Michael O'Keefe did not run for re-election after 20 years on the job. It's 7:33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the engineering design workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com/mos. Make it four wins in a row for the Celtics. They beat the Detroit Pistons 128-112 to last night at the Garden. The Seas return to action tomorrow against the Denver Nuggets. Tonight, the Bruins host the Calgary Flames. In your forecast, clear skies in mid to upper 60s today. It'll be a bit windy. Overcast and low 50s tonight. Tomorrow, a cloudy Veterans Day in the upper 60s. There's a chance of rain Friday evening and on Saturday morning. Then, mostly sunny and low 70s on Saturday afternoon. It's 47 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is NPR.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. President Biden's party just endured an election, losing some ground but gaining more support than some expected. Now he spends the weekend abroad and he will meet the leader of a very, very different political system, China's Xi Jinping who just installed himself for a third term. She eliminated the only check there was on a Chinese leader, the custom that he would eventually step aside. NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez is traveling with the U.S. president. Hey there, Franco. Hey, Steve. Okay, so we've just had a demonstration of of our system. The people have spoken. How do those results affect the president standing abroad? Well, basically, the results mean he'll have a more receptive audience. Biden's going to meet with a bunch of leaders at the U.N. climate summit in Egypt and in Cambodia. And finally, in Bali with the G20, foreign leaders, you know, as you know, pay close attention to U.S. domestic politics. And the fact that Democrats did better than expected means that Biden won't have as many questions about whether he has the backing of the American people, especially on foreign policy matters. Hmm. I spoke with Zach Cooper about this. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a conservative think tank. I think it will give Biden a feeling that he has maybe a little bit of wind at his back. Republicans look to have a margin in the House of Representatives, but it was less of a loss than I think many had expected for the Democrats. You know, Steve Cooper says big losses in the midterms would have raised concerns about Biden's staying power. And frankly, whether the isolationist policies of former President Donald Trump were coming back. So having had that result, what does Biden want to accomplish? You know, there are a lot of tensions over trade and national security, particularly with Xi Jinping. So when they meet, they're going to have a lot to talk about. Biden says he won't make any concessions to appease Xi when he meets him on the sidelines of the G20. But he does want to set some limits. Here's what, how he put it yesterday. And I've told them, I'm looking for competition, not, not, uh, not conflict. And so what I want to do with him when we talk is lay out what, the, what kind of each of our red lines are, understand what he believes to be in the critical national interest of China, what I know to be the critical interest of the United States, and determine whether or not they conflict with one another. And this includes Taiwan. Biden has said his policy hasn't changed on Taiwan, which China claims as its territory. But Biden has made a lot of statements about whether the U.S. would defend Taiwan. And he says he's had that conversation with Xi when he sees him. Uh, As Biden meets a number of world leaders, I would assume that Ukraine is going to come up. Ukraine will definitely come up, and so will Vladimir Putin, even if he's not there, and he might not be there. Biden is going to be talking a lot about the impacts of Russia's war around the world. I spoke with Melinda Herring. She's the deputy director of the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. She says Putin is the elephant in the room. We know that the issues that the G20 faces The big themes of this meeting are energy security and food security. And those issues both, of course, touch on the war in Ukraine. So even if Vladimir Putin is not there, his spirit is sort of hovering over the G20. Now, Herring says none of the leaders really want Putin there. No one wants to take a picture with him. But at the same time, it's difficult to address big issues like food security and energy security if the most consequential player is not there. NPR's Franco Ordonez will be covering this meeting of the world's 20 largest economies, or maybe we should say 19. Franco, thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. 
We're two weeks away from Thanksgiving, and this Thanksgiving will include an unwanted guest, inflation. Many families will not be giving thanks for the high price of turkey and travel this holiday season. But how high are those prices? We'll get some clues this morning when the Labor Department reports on inflation for the month of October. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now with a preview. Hi, Scott. Good morning, Layla. Good morning. So, Scott, Norman Rockwell's famous painting, Freedom from Want, shows a family gathered for a Thanksgiving feast with a big turkey at the center. So if you want your table to look like that, what's it going to cost this year? It's going to cost more. Uh, Grocery prices in September were up 13% from a year ago. That outstrips the overall inflation rate that month, which was 8.2%. As you mentioned, we'll find out more about October's inflation rate a little bit later this morning. Now, that report won't break out the retail price of turkey, but we know the wholesale price of turkey this fall was up 23% from a year ago, which could gobble up a lot of the typical Thanksgiving budget. Now, economist Michael Swanson at Wells Fargo says grocery stores may eat some of that increase as long as shoppers splurge on the rest of the meal. It'd be interesting to see what the retailers do. There might be some promotional activity around that to try to get you in the store to buy the rest of the expensive basket. Mm. Avian flu is partly to blame for higher turkey prices, but Swanson says energy costs, labor shortages, and adverse weather have also driven up the price of some other Thanksgiving staples like cranberries and potatoes. The prices that potato processors were paying for potatoes on the spot market was three times higher than they typically pay. And that's because of hot, dry weather in the potato-growing region of the Pacific Northwest. So are people scaling back their menus because of the prices? You know, you can make some substitutions to save some money. Maybe this is the year to try the store brand stuffing mix instead of the brand name. But Swanson thinks most people will not scrimp that much on the big Thanksgiving meal, even if that means cutting corners elsewhere. Mm. We're seeing something similar with travel. Airfares this fall are up nearly 43% from a year ago. But Haley Berg, who's with the Travel Out Hopper, says that is not stopping people from flying. For many families, they may not have been able to travel home or to see family for the holidays in two or three years. Keep in mind that in November and December of last year, we had the Delta and Omicron waves of COVID, which caused mass cancellations and many travelers to change their plans at the last minute. One piece of good news for travelers, rental car prices are slightly lower this year than they were last year uh, when rental car companies were still in the process of rebuilding their fleets. So it sounds like a lot of people are thinking, not another holiday where I won't see my family, whatever it costs. So when do they, what do they do when the bill comes, especially when so many things are getting more expensive? Some people are digging into savings to help cover expenses. Other mm-hmm. people are using their credit cards. You know, credit card balances jumped about 13% in July, August, and September, even though Ted Rossman of Bankrate points out the average interest rate on credit cards is now at a record high. I think there's going to be a lot of post-holiday debt hangovers, a lot of sticker shock in January, unfortunately. So far, Layla, defaults and delinquencies on credit cards are lower than they usually are in in historical standards. But Rossman thinks people's willingness to keep paying higher prices is approaching its limit. NPR's Scott Horsley, thank you so much for your reporting. You're welcome. Coming later today on All Things Considered, the sequel to the Black Panther movie, Wakanda Forever, stands as a tribute to the late star Chadwick Boseman. To listen, stream NPR on your computer or your smartphone on your member station's website or on the radio.
This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, after losses this week in all of Massachusetts's statewide and congressional races, we look at what the future may hold for the state GOP. And in our next hour, Hurricane Nicole made landfall this morning along Florida's Atlantic coast, bringing rain, high winds, and storm surge to communities as far north as Georgia. Sunny and mid to upper 60s today. It might be a bit windy, too. Tonight it grows partly cloudy and temperatures fall to the low 50s. Tomorrow starts with patchy fog. Then we'll have a cloudy Friday with temperatures near 70. There's a chance of rain in the evening and on Saturday morning. It's 47 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ceres, a nonprofit tackling our biggest sustainability challenges, including the climate and water crises. America's climate leadership is center stage at COP27. How can investors and companies go further, faster? Ceres has solutions. More at ceres.org slash WBUR. Now in business news, Japanese drug maker Sumitomo Pharma is laying off more than 350 people at its facility in Marlboro. The company says the cuts will go into effect in January. The Cambridge coffee chain Darwin's will shut down all four of its locations. The owners say they're ready to retire from the business. They plan to close the Mount Auburn Street location in the next two weeks. Darwin's workers are represented by a union. The owners say they're waiting a response from that union to confirm closure dates for the remaining three locations. Rhode Island-based Coastal One Credit Union will open its first full-service branch in Massachusetts. Providence Business First reports the branch is planned for just over the state line in North Attleboro. It still needs approval from state banking regulators. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp. Connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Republicans made some important gains across the country in the midterms this week, but not in Massachusetts. WBUR's Steve Brown has a look at what the losses mean for the future of the state Republican Party. The mood seemed grim at the Republican election watch at the Boston Harbor Hotel on Tuesday night, despite upbeat music, cash bars, free sliders, and chicken fingers. Jeff Deal, the Republican running for governor, lost by such a wide margin that the Associated Press called the race for Democrat Mara Healey just minutes after the polls closed. In his concession speech, Deal tried to cheer up supporters. So don't be sad. Just know that we were able to get the message out there. God bless bless you. God bless Massachusetts. And God bless these United States of America. Thank you all. At the end of the night, Deal wasn't the only Republican here who fell short. The GOP lost every single statewide contest, all nine congressional races, two key county races, and some legislative races. I think the Republican Party is underwater, 
and, and will be for years to come right now. Longtime GOP political consultant Rob Gray notes that Republicans have had success for decades in Massachusetts by nominating moderates for governor, people like Charlie Baker, Mitt Romney, Paul Cellucci, and Bill Weld. But Gray says things have changed. Well, Donald Trump hijacked the National Republican Party, and then he hijacked the Massachusetts Republican Party. Uh, Baker lost control, and Trump supporters took over. Those Trump supporters include Deal, who won the GOP nomination with Trump's help, only to lose badly in the general election on Tuesday. Another key Trump supporter is the party chairman, Jim Lyons. Lyons refused to answer questions Tuesday night, but in the weeks leading up to the election, Lyons argued voters want to see strong Republican candidates. I think what the people of Massachusetts want to see is a Republican party that doesn't all of a set, all, all go along with everything that the Democrats do. And I think that's what I'm trying to bring. There has to be a distinction in Massachusetts between what the Democratic Party stands for and what the Republican Party stands for. But increasingly, Republicans have little power in the state. In addition to the statewide and congressional races, Republicans also lost several notable down-ballot contests. That includes Republican Bristol County Sheriff Thomas Hodgson, who has been a huge admirer of Trump. On Cape Cod, the GOP lost a legislative seat at both the DA and sheriff's offices. All three offices were held by Republicans who decided not to seek re-election. And when the new legislature takes office in January, 85% will be Democrats. Still, outgoing Republican Governor Charlie Baker sloughed off questions from reporters yesterday about the GOP's future. What does it mean for the Republican Party, though? There's already a chairmanship fight happening. Do you walk away from it all? Do you try to handle I'm still the governor. I got a job I got to do for the next 58 days or so, and then we can talk about that stuff. Already there are rumblings that some Republicans are looking for new leadership. Politico reported that party vice chair Jay Fleitman plans to run for party chairman in January. He told Politico the party needs serious rebuilding after getting swamped in Tuesday's election. But until at least the next election, Republicans will have little say in how the state is run. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. This is 90.9 WBOR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, as protests sparked by a woman's death continue in Iran, NPR's history podcast, Throughline, explores the long history of activism by Iranian women. And in 20 minutes, Georgia election officials now face their third runoff in less than two years as voters decide the Senate race between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. It's 7.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series. Presenting the Berliner Philharmoniker, with music by Andrew Norman, Mozart, and Korngold. November 13th at Symphony Hall, CelebritySeries.org. And University of New England, Maine's largest private university, on campuses in Portland and coastal Biddeford, and online, une.edu. Hospitals are being overwhelmed by children sick with RSV. The surge of patients, the influx of patients, patients waiting to get beds, the demand on the system, it feels very much like 2020. What is respiratory syncytial virus, and why is this usually mild illness surging now? 
how can it be contained? We'll talk about it on Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Low 50s today under sunny skies, clear tonight and around 40. Low 60s tomorrow and sunny again, near 70 for Veterans Day, but cloudy with a chance of showers. It's 48 degrees in Boston. Today on Radio Boston, a look at how our election results here in Massachusetts could affect the national political landscape. That's today at 11 and 3 on Radio Boston. And remember to keep it here with WBUR and NPR for more on the remaining races and what comes next. It's 7.51. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. For nearly two months, Iranians have been protesting following the death of a woman in the custody of Iran's morality police. She was detained for allegedly wearing her hijab inappropriately, and her name was Mahsa Amini. She's also known by her Kurdish name, Gina Amini. She's from Iran's Kurdish minority, which has historically faced state repression. Now, the symbol of the protest following her death has often been the hijab, but the story goes much deeper than that. Today, Randa Abdul Fateh and Ramtin Arablouei from NPR's History Podcast Throughline explore how women's long history of political activism in Iran is also part of the Iranian people's fight for self determination. Women have been at the center of politics in Iran for more than 100 years. By the time of the Iranian Revolution in 1979, they'd won freedoms, including the right to vote and initiate divorce. The end of Iran's monarchy came early today when Khomeini's followers took control of the palace of the Shah. But within weeks of toppling the Shah, Iran's new leader, Ayatollah Khomeini, began restricting women's activities and dress, starting with an order that they cover their heads in government offices. This kicked off years of battles between the clerics and leaders running the country and women who were pushing back, looking for ways to gain autonomy even under restrictive laws. In 1997, nearly 20 years after the revolution, there was a historic presidential election in Iran where nearly 80% of eligible voters turned out. And the winner was a cleric named Ayatollah Muhammad Khatami. Western media portrayed him as a moderate. The smiling face of moderation, or at least what's considered moderate in Iran. Some social freedoms with Khatami were starting to emerge. Young people could walk together, you know, boyfriends and girlfriends hold hands in public. This is Arezu Osandu an Iranian-American legal anthropologist who studied Iran's legal system for decades. He has promised more rights, more freedom, and a better life within the Islamic system. During the Khatami presidency, women began pushing more and more against the dress code, too. And more women were elected to parliament than any time since the revolution, proposing laws that would further strengthen the rights of women. Many of Iran's conservatives didn't like it. This is around when we started to see a lot of pushback to women's uh, ability to employ and make use of the actual existing Iranian constitution and the set of civil codes, enhance them and get rights and concessions. In 2005, 
Mohammad Khatami left office after serving two terms as president. So Iranian voters went to the polls and elected a new president, a man who'd never held national office. Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. When Ahmadinejad becomes president, he actually campaigns on this platform that really speaks to a greater emphasis on so-called traditional roles, what, what some people might call conservative roles of women as nurturers, raising the children and guiding the family. Ahmadinejad took a much more conservative line than Khatami. There is an uptake again of women's bodily uh, comportment, their clothing, how they express themselves in public, and a kind of surveillance of women. To be clear, this surveillance also included violence. Iran's morality police force was established in the 1990s to enforce social rules like proper hijab for women. Under the Ahmadinejad administration, they became more aggressive in their enforcement, which included arrests, alleged beatings, and sometimes lashings. So in 2009, when Ahmadinejad won his second term, protests erupted in what became known as the Green Movement. The incumbent Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was announced as the overwhelming winner, but many Iranians refused to believe it. Government forces cracked down hard, killing people in the street and arresting thousands. The regime was willing to go to great lengths to scale back the reforms many people, including women, had fought hard to win. Iran is a country that is still in a revolution. If you look at the Constitution, it's the Constitution of the Revolutionary Islamic Republic. And so the, the way that the women are dressed comes to stand in for this timelessness of the revolutionary struggle. And so the idea of women sort of not wearing this, what does that mean for our incomplete revolutionary struggle that we're fighting? And so after the Green Movement was squashed by government repression, the work of the morality police went on, including the surveillance. The better term for this is guidance police, and I think we can also see how this is an echo of the the guardianship of the jurisprudence, because one of the big debates was, what does it mean to be a guide, a moral guide, or a, more, a guardian of jurisprudence? Are you just somebody who's there to like suggest I change my practices, or are you there with veto power? And I think we know the answer to the Velay Atefari today, we know very well. It is a brutal cycle. Iranian women carve out more space and more rights, and the regime tightens its grip in response. It's not just about Islam. It's not just about the state. It's about something greater. And it's about what women, not men, what women signify for the state beyond Iran, not just in Iran. It's a message about the revolutionary values that have guided and led Iran's Islamic Republic since 1979. That was Arazu Osanlu speaking with Throughline hosts Randa Abdel Fateh and Ramtin Arablouei. You can hear the whole episode by finding Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fulton. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Sunny, windy, and mid-60s today, partly cloudy and low 50s tonight. Friday starts with patchy fog. Then it'll be cloudy and near 70 degrees. There's a chance of rain toward nighttime, and the showers may continue into Saturday morning. Right now, it's 48 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the British International School of Boston. Thinking beyond traditional education, collaborating with MIT and Juilliard, Open House November 20th. Register at BISBoston.org. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Control of the U.S. House and Senate remains in question with races in Arizona and Nevada yet to be called and the Senate election in Georgia headed to a runoff. It's Thursday, November 10th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Georgia election officials brace themselves for yet another runoff. This will be a very heavy lift for our counties because it's a four-week runoff period. But I have confidence they will take all measures required to rise to the task. We'll also get reaction to the midterms from New Jersey Senator Democrat Cory Booker. Also this hour, we hear from undocumented Massachusetts residents after voters upheld a new state law allowing them to get driver's licenses. Plus, California voters approve a ban on flavored tobacco products, and now supporters hope more states follow suit. And Nicole is downgraded to a tropical storm after making landfall in Florida. In sports, the Celtics win sunny and in the 60s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. Which party controls Congress still isn't known as key House and Senate races continue to be counted. Even so, it looks possible that President Biden will spend the rest of his term in office with at least a Republican-controlled House. NPR's Tamara Keith has more on how that may work. If Democrats are able to hang on to the Senate, then Biden would at least be able to keep getting judges confirmed, uh, which is something he has already done at a record clip. Um, With narrow margins, Democrats in the last couple of years uh, already had Biden scaling back his ambitions, uh, and he had to do some things through executive actions like student loan forgiveness, which is getting hung up in court, as uh, often happens with executive actions. So you could expect to see more of that. NPR's Tamara Keith reporting. Nicole made landfall on the east coast of Florida around Vero Beach this morning as a Category 1 hurricane, but weakened to a tropical storm shortly thereafter. Danielle Pryor with member station WMFE reports more than 230,000 homes and businesses are without power in the state. Nicole is forecast to continue weakening as it moves along Florida's east coast, bringing tropical storm force winds, storm surge, and heavy rain to central Florida throughout the morning. As of 4 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, the storm was clocking in at 70 miles an hour in some areas. Officials are asking residents to stay off the roads as down power lines and flooding is possible. The rare storm in November prompted closures of airports and theme parks as well as evacuations. President Biden approved 
approved a state of emergency for the storm-weary state ahead of Nicole. For NPR News, I'm Danielle Pryor in Orlando. New numbers on inflation in the economy are due out this hour from the Labor Department. NPR's Scott Horsley reports forecasters think the annual inflation rate cooled a bit last month, although prices are still climbing at a rapid rate. The Consumer Price Index for October is expected to show prices up about 7.9 percent from a year ago. That would be a slower pace of inflation than September's rate of 8.2 percent, but it's still nearly four times the Federal Reserve's inflation target. The central bank has been raising interest rates aggressively in an effort to curb demand and bring inflation under control. Used car prices, which were a big driver of inflation last year, have been coasting back to earth, but rent is still putting upward pressure on the cost of living index. Food and airline tickets are also getting more expensive just two weeks before one of the biggest eating and traveling holidays of the year. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. U.S. futures contracts are trading higher this morning. Dow futures are up about one-tenth of a percent. NASDAQ futures are up just over three-tenths of a percent. You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Lieutenant Governor-elect Kim Driscoll will lead the transition team for the new administration. Driscoll and Governor-elect Maura Healey met with Governor Baker and Lieutenant Governor Polito yesterday. After the meeting, none of them offered any specifics on what they discussed. Healey says the governor promised a smooth transition. It's about the stewardship of this great commonwealth and making sure that people and families across the state are getting what they need from their government. And and that's what today's conversation and the work ahead in the days and, and weeks is about. Healy is the first woman elected governor of Massachusetts. She's also the first openly lesbian person elected governor of any state. Arlene Isaacson is co-chair of the Massachusetts GLBTQ political caucus. She says Healy's victory is the result of years of organizing. It's really exciting. It is, uh, it's groundbreaking. I feel really proud of her. A lot of people do in our community. The incoming state treasurer in Connecticut is also making history. Eric Russell is the first black openly LGBTQ person elected to statewide office in U.S. history. A new tax on incomes over $1 million will take effect next year. The surtax was approved on ballot question one. It passed in Tuesday's election with 52 percent of the vote. The measure steers the new revenue toward education and transportation funding, but that is not required by law. Yes on One campaign manager Haron Mariani says the change will help address the state's wealth gap. Our tax code is unfair and it's biased towards wealthier individuals, towards corporations and businesses. Critics believe the new tax will hurt the state's economy by driving people and businesses away. A small plot of land in Chelsea will become a permanent public space. The city council voted to turn the 11,000-square-foot lot into a park. WPUR's Paula Mora reports the hope is that the park will help combat the effects of climate change. Community members have already been using the space for a year. It's within a severe heat island and is mostly covering concrete, though there are some swings, plants, and a few trees. Bianca Bowman is with the environmental nonprofit Green Roots. She says they have been surveying nearby residents to learn what people would like the space to be. You know, block to block, you're really just experiencing pavement and heat. And so each little bit of access to green space is 
incredibly important. She says that a park will make a big difference for low- and median-income residents. The city of Chelsea estimates it will begin working on the park over a year from now. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. A new study shows that when mask mandates were lifted in Massachusetts schools, more kids got COVID. The study from the New England Journal of Medicine says positive test rates went up among students and staff when masking rules were lifted. The study also points to a connection between mask mandates and race. Districts that kept masking rules in place had a higher percentage of students of color and older buildings with worse ventilation. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. The Celtics topped the Detroit Pistons 128-112 last night at the Garden for their fourth straight win. The Seas are off today. They'll host the Denver Nuggets tomorrow. Tonight at the Garden, the Bruins take on the Calgary Flames. Sunny today with a high in the mid to upper 60s. Partly cloudy overnight with temperatures around 50. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with rain moving in after sunset. High near 70. Rainy on Saturday. It's 49 degrees in Boston at 808. WBUR supporters include Netflix presenting Is That Black Enough for You? From writer and director Elvis Mitchell comes a love letter to black cinema of the 70s, celebrating the films and talent that changed the game on Netflix November 11th. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. For a second straight time, control of the U.S. Senate may come down to a second round of voting in Georgia. After Tuesday's election, neither candidate received 50 percent of the vote in Georgia, so Democrat Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker will be on the ballot again December 6th. Here's the way the math works. Three Senate races are undecided. Whoever wins two of them takes control. Arizona and Nevada are still counting and may need a few days. And if they do not give either party a Senate majority, Georgia takes its turn. Joining us now for more is Georgia Public Broadcasting's Stephen Fowler. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning. So why not just start by explaining Georgia's election rules and how we got to this point? Sure. So Georgia is actually one of two states that requires a runoff for both a primary and a general election if nobody gets more than 50% of the vote. And with a libertarian in the Senate race, plus Georgia being a close battleground state, that's not always a given for candidates to get above 50%. So here, with very few ballots remaining, Senator Raphael Warnock is about half a percent under that cutoff and narrowly ahead of Herschel Walker. And since elections officials say there aren't going to be enough ballots left to be counted to change that outcome, Georgia is now headed to a runoff election again for the U.S. Senate. Now, what's interesting is that Georgia runoff laws were initially enacted by segregationist Democrats trying to keep black voters from picking a candidate of their choice, essentially ensuring all the white voters who supported different white candidates would coalesce around a white candidate in a runoff. But now in 2022, we've got two black candidates for one of the highest offices in the land that voters will choose from because of these runoff laws. Wow. So a law originally aimed at disenfranchising black voters is the reason this runoff rule even exists. Now, Stephen, this Senate race is an outlier for Republicans, right? They otherwise dominated the election in Georgia. So what does this close race tell us about these candidates, especially Herschel Walker, really, as a Republican candidate? 
Well, Walker is a weaker candidate, like some of the other Trump-backed candidates we've seen in states that have had issues here. He's been dogged by controversies over alleged payments of abortions to ex-girlfriends, a past history of domestic violence allegations, nonsensical statements about policy, and so many other things. Voting data shows so far Walker's underperforming Governor Brian Kemp by a large margin in very Republican counties in the state at about 5% overall, meaning 1 in 10 Republican voters in Georgia opted for somebody else in the Senate race. Now, Warnock is a well-known figure. He's an incumbent who's pitched himself as a problem solver who works in a bipartisan manner and managed to distance himself from President Joe Biden's unpopularity. They've both raised boatloads of cash, and this is the most expensive Senate race that spending set to continue. Now, the runoff is December 6th, four weeks away. That's a quick turnaround. What should voters expect in the runoff, and is either candidate favored at this point? Well, they should expect a lot of ads with their Thanksgiving turkey, but it's hard to say who's at the advantage. Typically, whoever finished first in the general election usually wins the runoff. A notable exception is 2021, when fellow Democratic Georgia Senator John Ossoff beat David Perdue in 2021. There's also some timing things to consider. The previous runoff used to be nine weeks. Campaigns had time to gear things up. Now they're just hitting the ground running, and early voting doesn't even start until after Thanksgiving. Stephen Fowler of Georgia Public Broadcasting, thank you. Thank you. Hurricane Nicole made landfall early this morning south of Vero Beach, Florida. As the winds slow down, it's been downgraded to a tropical storm, but still brings a lot of force to Florida and most likely to Georgia and the Carolinas after that. NPR's Greg Allen is in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Hey there, Greg. Hi, Steve. What was it like as the storm approached? Well, you know, I was out yesterday long before the hurricane hit and roads were already flooding here. And, and, and I went out to the beach on Hutchinson Island. Um, you could see uh, significant beach damage already. Even this is, you know, a day before the storm hit. Hmm. Uh, out there, there were, I've been in many other hurricanes, but never seen a surf like this. Was, the waves were so high and so turbulent. It was actually just scary to be on the beach. But then when the, the storm came ashore early this morning, it, it, was, it came ashore as a category one storm. So the first concerns really have to be the high winds and uh, authorities here say that homes throughout this part of Florida, especially newer ones, should be able to withstand winds, 75 mile per hour winds with little damage. So they're not too concerned about structural issues. I mean, the bigger issues would be people in mobile homes and older yeah. homes that aren't well maintained. Uh, right now, it's all about power outages. Uh, winds like that powerful will take down trees and limbs, and we have some significant power outages here already on the uh, on the Atlantic coast. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis talked about this at a briefing yesterday. He was a little bit hoarse after his victory speech following his reelection on Tuesday. Floridians in the path of the storm should expect you know, to see power outages when you're having uh, these gusty conditions. Uh, there'll be debris you know, that will affect uh, power lines and the transmission lines. And so should just be prepared for that. DeSantis and other officials have been warning people now to be careful about using emergency generators if they need them because they have, don't have power. Oh, yeah. A lot of people have died from improper use of generators and after some many recent storms, and that's something to be concerned about. How wide a swath is this storm cutting? Well, it, you know, as, as it approached, it was amazing when you looked at it. It, it. it covered most of Florida and all the way up 
up into the Carolinas, wow. is how large it was. It started to organize some, but but uh, right now it's not just Florida is going to get the impact. National Hurricane Center says hundreds of miles of the Atlantic coast will see storm surge as far north as as South Carolina. And making things worse, the storm surge, which is as high as four or five feet, is coming during the full moon air period when tides are higher than usual. Here's uh, Don Donaldson, the county administrator in Florida's Martin County, near where the hurricane made landfall. The highest tides of the year, supplemented by this enormous wind field pushing water on the coast and an oncoming potential hurricane are going to add more water to it. And so if you're in a low-lying area, it is not going to get better. And, you know, in a community just south of Daytona Beach, the high surf and severe beach erosion led one building, a public restroom, to collapse yesterday. Police then ordered the evacuation of several beachfront condominium buildings out of concern for their stability. So uh, authorities will be out today assessing the damage to beaches and nearby structures. So talk us through the next few days. Well, you know, right now, since it's, it's uh, made landfall, it's weakening, it's going to crossing the peninsula, and it's going to turn north. The concern now really is flooding, both from the storm surge and rain. Uh, Nicole could drop as much as eight inches of rain in some areas. It is moving quickly, which is a good thing, but it still will cause some rivers to crest and bring the threat of flooding days after the storm's passed. Uh, this really is especially a worry in central and northwest Florida, which saw impacts from uh, Hurricane Ian just over a month ago. They got flooding in that, and they may see it again. And then as the storm moves north over Georgia and the Carolinas, Virginia, they'll have to be watching for possibility of rain and flooding. NPR's Greg Allen is in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Greg, thanks. Always appreciate your reporting. You're welcome, Steve. Russia's defense ministry has ordered its troops to pull out of a strategic city in southern Ukraine. The planned retreat from Kherson is one more setback for Moscow's forces in this war. NPR's Jason Bobian joins us from Dnipro, Ukraine, to tell us more about this. Good morning, Jason. Hey, good morning. So how significant is this withdrawal by Russia? Yeah, well, first, while we are seeing evidence that Russian troops are starting to depart, they haven't yet entirely pulled out of the city. Um, Ukrainian officials, including President Zelensky, are still quite skeptical about this whole move by Moscow and are approaching the announcement uh, quite cautiously. But if the Russian military does withdraw to the east bank of the Dnipro River, as the Russian defense ministry is calling for, this is a major win for the Ukrainians. You know, for months, Ukraine has been slowly and steadily closing in on Kherson. But the big fear was that Russia could try to fiercely defend the city and things might deteriorate into a disastrous situation like we saw in Mariupol or a street yeah. battle like happened in Aleppo with Russian troops there. Uh, if this all goes to a plan, it could seem like we're going to avoid the bloodbath that uh, people were really worried about potentially happening in Kherson. But you mentioned all the skepticism from Ukrainian officials. Why the skepticism? Yeah, I mean, they're skeptical because the loss of Kherson city would be a major embarrassment for the Kremlin. This is the capital of one of the regions that Moscow claimed to have formally annexed into the Russian Federation in September. And President Putin said it's going to be part of Russia forever. So, you know, by the Kremlin logic, this is officially now part of Russia and they're giving it up. And also, it's the only regional capital that Russia has seized since the invasion. There, there had been word that Russian military officers had asked to retreat earlier, but were ordered to stay, you know, and there's still concern in Kyiv that potentially this is a trap, that Moscow is trying to lure Ukrainian troops into Kherson where they'd be ambushed. So help us understand a little bit more about what the Russian defense ministry actually announced. Does this mean Russia's abandoning Kherson entirely? Yeah, that's an important point. The, the Russians say they're simply 
pulling back to a more strategic position and they're doing this to save Russian troops. But it's still a very dangerous retreat in part because they have to cross the largest river in Ukraine and the Ukrainians have blown up the bridge that's going out of Kherson and the Russians could be doing this retreat under Ukrainian fire the whole time. Uh, the order, as, as I mentioned, is for them to withdraw to the east bank of the Dnipro River. And that's mm -hmm. just on the other side of the water from Kherson. So Russia will still be able to lob artillery shells. Tanks will still be able to fire at the city. They can drop mortars on it. Uh, you know, this is in no way the complete liberation of Kherson. And we are seeing some evidence that Russian forces are digging in trenches and, and, and building fortifications there on the east bank. Okay, but this must be a morale boost for the Ukrainians, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. It, it comes after other major victories by Ukrainian forces in the east of the country. For months, Russia has been steadily losing the territory that it seized early in the war. And this is one more major city that's now slipping out of their control. Also, the fact that this happened before winter fully sets in here is key. I mean, it's already quite cold here, uh, but there was a lot of concern about how difficult it was going to be for Ukrainian troops to launch counteroffensive operations out there in the snow. So, you know, even though Ukrainian officials are being cautious, saying that they'll believe this retreat when they actually see it, uh, this is being celebrated here as another significant win and evidence that the war you know, although things are still quite tough, it, it's moving in the right direction from a Ukrainian perspective. And Pierre's Jason Bobian in Dnipro, Ukraine. Thanks, Jason. You're welcome. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. We look at the role campaign spending played in the midterms coming up and what that might mean for future elections. And anti-smoking advocates hope more states will follow California after voters there chose to uphold a ban on flavored tobacco products, including e-cigarettes. It's 820. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people living with sickle cell disease, cystic fibrosis, kidney disease, and more. Careers in Boston, Cambridge, and Providence at VRTX.com. And Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities, directtire.com. I'm Peter O'Dowd. Re-elected Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is often seen as a possible contender for the Republican nomination in 2024. Now, thanks to the overwhelming support of the people of Florida, we not only won election, we have rewritten the political map. Our election coverage continues next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Sunny today with a high near 67. There may be some gusty winds tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 50. Right now it's 49 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Morgan Stanley with their podcast Thoughts on the Market, offering concise takes on current events and their implications for financial markets. Three minutes an episode, five times a week. Thoughts on the Market. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com.
Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The 2022 election is the most expensive midterm election yet. Candidates and political action committees spent nearly $17 billion on state and federal campaigns. That's according to data compiled by Open Secrets, which is a nonpartisan research group that tracks money in politics. Chara Torres-Spellacy is a fellow with the Brennan Center and an expert in campaign finance and election law. Welcome to the program. Good morning. How is it that campaigns keep getting more expensive cycle after cycle? So I see the Supreme Court's fingerprints all over this election. The Supreme Court has been laying the groundwork for the past 46 years, starting with Buckley versus Vallejo, which allowed rich individuals to spend all they wanted on elections. And then the court expanded that right to spend to corporations in Citizens United. And the result has been the federal election was $9 billion dollars. And the state elections were $7.8 billion. Hmm. And both of those numbers are up from the last midterm. Can I just note, um, I think this is probably still less money that people spend on advertising for cars or video games or shoes or any number of things. Is it really that bad? I certainly think so. Uh, I think it distorts our politics and it warps who can even be elected. What do you mean? So one of the things that happens is we put candidates through a money primary before they go through a real primary. And if a particular candidate can't fundraise, they are written off as being non-serious. But the ability to fundraise and the ability to govern are two different skill sets. Are there individual wealthy people who have raised their voices in a way that makes them far larger than a single vote? Indeed. Uh, So Citizens United and Buckley empowered large donors to spend lavishly in our elections. And just 10 wealthy individuals poured over a half a billion dollars combined into this year's election, according to our good friends over at Open Secrets. And in this election, there was a lot of money from uh, crypto and the tech sector. Sam Bankman-Fried spent... 38 million and Larry Ellison spent 31 million. Wow. Um, I want to note something. You said that the Supreme Court has been chipping away at campaign finance restrictions for 46 years. I suppose we should note the context. After the Watergate scandals, there were a lot of questions about the way that political candidates were spending money. Congress stepped in, attempted to regulate this. They even said that presidential campaigns, general election campaigns, would be publicly financed. That is the structure that was set up, am I not mistaken, that has been gradually eroding and is pretty much gone at this point. Is that right? That is correct. Um, Buckley, which uh, is sometimes misknown for the theory that money is speech, looked at that Watergate era reform and sort of tore pieces out of it. And the Supreme Court has been dismantling campaign finance ever since. Is it at least some consolation that in some cases, although not all, we have some idea who is spending the money? So one of the problems that we have in campaign finance is the dark money problem. Uh, Dark money is money that is spent on a political campaign where voters can't tell who the original donor was. And in the 2020 election, there was a billion dollars of dark money spent. 
Wow. In this election, uh, it looks like it's lower, which is typical of a midterm compared to a presidential election. But there has been at least $100 million of dark money in the 2022 election. If it's not disclosed, is it possible we don't even know about violations of the few laws that there are? For example, it might be foreign money. We wouldn't know. That That is the big problem. Um, if we don't know where money is coming from, it could be coming from an illegal source, including a foreign source, which is not allowed under our laws. Chara Torres-Spellacy of the Brennan Center, thanks so much. Thank you. Californians this week voted to uphold the state's ban on all flavored tobacco products. NPR's Yuki Noguchi reports anti-smoking advocates hope more states and federal regulators will follow. The state's flavor ban includes e-cigarettes, which have skyrocketed in popularity among teenagers. For several years, around 2010, young people had largely stopped smoking. Tobacco use fell rapidly from over a third of teens to about 5%. Then the arrival and marketing of vaping reversed that. Matt Myers says tobacco flavors like strawberry cheesecake and cotton candy introduced a new generation to nicotine. Flavors hook kids, 85% of kids who use e-cigarettes, use flavored e-cigarettes. Myers is president of the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids. He says California's ban will hamper the tobacco industry's ability to market to young people and the black community, which he says have been disproportionately targeted by the marketing of flavored products. The overwhelming size of the California vote, I think, will send a message to other states and hopefully to the Food and Drug Administration. Massachusetts and Washington, D.C. have already adopted measures like California's. The FDA is undergoing extensive review of all e-cigarette products and is requiring approval for them to remain on the market. Last month, the agency rejected its first menthol e-cigarette product. In fact, regulators all around the world are turning against flavored tobacco. The European Union, the U.K., and Canada have removed menthol from their markets. Robert Jackler is a professor at Stanford and expert on tobacco marketing. He says flavors attract children to tobacco by reducing its harsh taste, which makes it easier to become addicted to nicotine. Although there are some adults who might like cotton candy flavored e-cigarettes, that's true, there's a major differential appeal to young people for sweet and fruity flavors. Jackler hopes regulators will also reduce the concentration of nicotine in e-cigarettes and tax them heavily to make them unaffordable for kids. California's law, which also affects menthol cigarettes, will take effect shortly after the vote is certified. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, ballot measures in several states resulted in victories for abortion rights supporters. We look at the implications for both policy and strategy. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Antiquarian Book Fair. Rare books, maps, and prints at the Heinz tomorrow through Sunday. Appraisals open to the public on Sunday. BostonBookFair.com and MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at mathworks.com careers. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Nearly a quarter million homes and businesses in Florida are without power this morning because of Nicole. The storm came ashore before dawn near Vero Beach as a Category 1 hurricane. It's since weakened to a tropical storm. Robbie Berg is at the National Hurricane Center near Miami. We do expect that Nicole is going to continue moving generally to the west-northwest today across the Florida Peninsula. Uh, it could reemerge over the Gulf of Mexico this afternoon, but it won't be over water very long. Nicole's top sustained winds are down to 60 miles per hour. Georgia, the Carolinas, and Virginia are also expecting heavy rains and strong winds from the storm. Votes are still being counted in many House races along with Senate contests in Arizona and Nevada. The results will determine the control of Congress beginning in January. NPR's Jimena Bustillo in Phoenix says elections officials in Arizona's Maricopa County still have hundreds of thousands of ballots to count. Election officials are estimating it will take until Friday evening to record 95 percent of the county's vote. Maricopa County has the largest share of voters in the state. So far, the ballots of over 1.9 million people have been counted across Arizona. The governor's race between Democrat Katie Hobbs and Republican Carrie Lake remains too close to call. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Phoenix. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Leaders with the Massachusetts Republican Party are trying to figure out what comes next. The GOP was shut out of all statewide offices in Tuesday's election. There were other losses down ballot. More now from WBUR's Steve Brown. The list of Republican losses is long. GOP candidates for governor, attorney general, secretary of state and auditor all went down to defeat. On Cape Cod, open seats for state rep, sheriff and district attorney, all currently held by retiring Republicans, will now be held by Democrats. And in Bristol County, longtime sheriff and Trump supporter Tom Hodgson lost the seat that he has held since 1997. Outgoing Republican Governor Charlie Baker brushed aside questions from reporters about the future of the party. Politico is reporting that the vice chairman of the Mass GOP plans to run for the top job, saying the party needs serious rebuilding after getting swamped. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. A new fleet of electric school buses will hit the roads in Lawrence by 2024. City leaders say the two dozen buses will cut down on emissions and help protect students and drivers. The money for the buses came from a federal program that will invest $5 billion into zero and low emission buses. That program will also bring new buses to Fall River, New Bedford and Bourne. A federal judge in Boston has sentenced a former Yale soccer coach for his involvement in the college admissions bribery scandal. Rudy Meredith will serve five months in prison. He pleaded guilty in March to accepting hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of bribes to get students into Yale as soccer recruits. Prosecutors acknowledged Meredith's help in unraveling the case, which contributed to his lower sentence. More than 50 people have been convicted in connection to the case. Today, the Coast Guard commissions the first of six new high-speed cutters that'll call Boston home. Lieutenant Commander Tyler Kelly is the commanding officer of the William Chadwick. He says the new class of fast-response cutters will help the Coast Guard do its job better. With six FRCs in Boston, I think you're going to see a more capable surface asset fleet to be able to support all the missions in uh, the 1st District. 
The cutters are designed for missions including search and rescue, drug cases, and coastal security. The William Chadwick is named after the man who received the Congressional Gold Life-Saving Medal in 1880. Some of his descendants will be in Boston today for the commissioning. It's 834. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballets, as anticipated, with works by choreographer William Forsyth, including a world premiere, now through November 13th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The Celtics beat the Detroit Pistons 128-112 to last night at the Garden. Jason Tatum had 31 points for Boston. The Seas will host the Denver Nuggets tomorrow. Tonight at the Garden, the Bruins face the Calgary Flames. In your forecast, clear skies and mid to upper 60s today. It'll be a bit windy. Overcast and low 50s tonight. Tomorrow, a cloudy Veterans Day in the upper 60s. There's a chance of rain Friday evening and on Saturday morning. Then, mostly sunny and low 70s on Saturday afternoon. It's 50 degrees in Boston at 835. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital markets solutions. Learn more at raymondjames.com. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Two days after the voting ended, we still do not know who will control the United States Senate. Democrats in Pennsylvania flipped a seat to their side. Vote counting continues in Nevada and Arizona, and a runoff is coming in Georgia. So this is almost like a sports playoff series. Whichever party wins two of those three, Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, gets a Senate majority. Republicans, overall, did worse than expected and worse than the party out of power normally does in a midterm election, yet the chambers are so closely divided they may still capture the House or the Senate. And that is the state of play as Democratic Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey joins us. Senator, welcome back. It's really good to be on. Thank you. What do you think the country was telling you on Tuesday? Well, obviously, we're still counting votes in many places. But as you said, this bucks a significant historical trend not only about the party in power during midterms, but also when inflation has been this high, the party in power usually gets decimated. And I think there are a few things to note. First and foremost, that this idea of protecting our democracy was salient. And the fact that the Republicans fielded literally hundreds of candidates that were denying elections and even saying things as outrageous as we saw with the gubernatorial candidate in Wisconsin, that if I win Republicans will never lose again in the state. Second, I think that there was a significant Republican overreach on issues that the majority of Americans on both sides of the aisle support, like the ability to control your own body, uh, and as well as things that they were openly talking about taking away, privatizing Social Security, cutting Medicare. And then the final thing, uh, at least I tried to do on the campaign trail, which I saw was really resonant, was we are in an economic crisis. And which party would have your back the most? When the Republicans were in charge, when Donald Trump was there, their signature bill was a massive tax cut to the wealthiest amongst us who just didn't need it. When Democrats were in charge, they lowered prescription drug prices, lowered medical costs, helped people out who were struggling with evictions, uh, and did the kind of common sense bread and butter things that were fighting for working people. Um, 
I, I suppose that, that, that you can make a case for all of that. It was a bad night for Republicans, and yet many millions of people did vote for Republican candidates, voted for candidates on the Republican side that even many Republicans considered to be very flawed, and Republicans seem likely to control at least one House of Congress next year. That is on their bad night. How is Washington going to be different next year, do you think? Well, I think that they've made it clear. I listen very closely to what colleagues on the other side of the aisle say. That one of the biggest themes they had in this election was going after Joe Biden in a very personal way. So I imagine if they take the House of Representatives, a lot of their time will be dealing with investigations of Joe Biden. They've personalized the efforts. And I think, unfortunately, we're going to see a lot of that kind of politics of personal destruction again. But what I'm hoping is, is that what we've done when we had control of both houses continues. We have passed the most significant bipartisan bills really uh, in generations, whether it's the Infrastructure Act, the Chips and Science Act, the first gun legislation for gun safety in 30 years. And so this spirit of bringing our country together on issues we agree on has to continue, not only for getting basic things done to help Americans, but still I believe that there are people questioning our democracy and we need to show that good people on both sides of the aisle can come together, can find common ground, and rally our country towards common cause. As you and your fellow Democrats head toward this lame duck session, this session which will be after the election but before the new Congress is sworn in, can you talk us through your thinking? I guess you must must have to assume that Republicans will capture the House, that it'll be much more difficult to legislate. And so what do you want to get done before you lose the chance to do it? Well, I think there are a lot of things that are urgent for Democrats. Number one, given what Clarence Thomas wrote uh, in the Dobbs decision, we want to secure marriage equality. Uh, number two, I think the biggest uh, agenda item for me in terms of helping working class people is taking that child tax credit uh, that gave the biggest middle class and working class tax cut in American history, that cut child poverty to the greatest degree in American history. Um, I would like to make the child tax credit permanent. It would be a massive uh, help to a lot of families. In addition to that, we've got to do basic things like fund the government, um, as well as uh, what we're continuing to do, which is balance the judiciary by passing and confirming a lot of judges. Can I just ask, you said fund the government. Of course, some Republicans have talked about a debt ceiling crisis. The debt ceiling has to be raised sometime early next year. Some Republicans have said this is an opportunity for us to get leverage, to, to get things we want. President Biden has said we're not going to do that. That does raise the prospect of some kind of U.S. government default. Would you, in that lame duck session, while Democrats can, perhaps extend the date of the debt ceiling, extend the debt ceiling into the future in some way? Well, I certainly hope we can do it. You've had presidents from Trump to, to Biden to Obama just say this is a ridiculous way to run a government. We're the only country that does that. This is not... Uh, spending money. It is actually saying that we're going to cover the bills that we already racked up. And it's always, uh, unfortunately, a time of consternation where some people uh, want to try to undermine the full faith and credit of the United States government. I, I so just want to cut in manage. here. Are you saying when you hope we can do that, are you saying that you hope that you can extend the debt ceiling during the lame duck session at the end of this year? Again, for me, that would be great. Uh, it's going to be a very crowded time. And I think we're going to have to pick and choose amongst priorities. So you don't know that your leadership is on with that. That's exactly right. Uh, can I ask another question? Because, of course, Ron DeSantis had a big reelection in Florida. Uh, he is increasingly seen as in conflict with Donald Trump. 
I'm presuming that you would not want either of those men to be president after 2024. <laughs> but tell me who as a Democrat you'd rather face, uh, rather your party to face in 2024 as a Republican nominee, Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis. Uh, you know, I'm an old track guy, and it's not about the person in the blocks next to you. It's about running your best race. Democrats have two more years to try to deliver on the kind of things that Americans want and paste, post a vision for the future that excites people. Uh, I understand that Ron DeSantis had a very good day in Florida. I know that the congressional races there, much of that was the result of serious gerrymandering in that state. But we've got two years to work for the American people. God, I know people want to focus on 2024. But we got to still get through 2022 and 2023. And we're a country that still faces challenges with COVID, that still has high inflation. Uh, we've got work to do. Is there a sliver of more conservative voters to whom you think you can still appeal and come away with a more decisive result than, say, this past midterm was? You know, absolutely. Uh, when I was out campaigning for Mark Kelly, he had me uh, go to give a, a speech with this incredible group of Republicans that were so disenfranchised, disenchanted with the false extreme right wing swing of their party. And the conversations we had, the common ground that we found was very encouraging to me. This nation needs desperately to put more indivisible back into this one nation under God. And I think that there is a powerful middle in this country that just wants sanity in their politics. And I hope to be one of those leaders to help provide it. Of course, Mark Kelly is the Democratic candidate for Senate in Arizona, one of the undecided races at this point. Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey, always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. All the best. He was talking with us from Newark. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, thousands of people may now apply for driver's licenses in Massachusetts after voters upheld a state law allowing licenses for unauthorized immigrants. Sunny and mid to upper 60s today. It might be windy, too. Tonight it grows partly cloudy and temperatures fall to the low 50s. Tomorrow starts with patchy fog. Then we'll have a cloudy Friday with temperatures near 70. There's a chance of rain in the evening and on Saturday morning. It's 51 degrees in Boston at 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. Help put joy on every plate this Thanksgiving. Donate at gbfb.org WBUR. Now in business news, Cambridge-based Phase Medicines appears to be shutting down. The startup had hoped to find treatments for neurological disorders. It's unclear what led to the shutdown. Stat News reports the company employed about 40 people. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts is pledging to be carbon neutral and zero waste by 2030. In addition to the pledge, the company says it'll give out over $700,000 in grants. The company says the money will go to local nonprofits driving change across the state. The matriarch of Kowloon Restaurant along Route 1 in Saugus has died. Madeline Wong founded the Chinese restaurant with her husband William in the late 1950s. She was 95 years old. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy.
For thousands of undocumented immigrants in Massachusetts, life is about to get a bit easier. That's because state voters this week decided to uphold a law that allows people in the country without authorization to get driver's licenses. WBUR's Simone Rios reports. Thirty-year-old Anna came to New Bedford when she was just 18 and began working in what's considered the top-grossing fishing port in the country. For the first decade, she'd walk back and forth to work in all weather, sometimes putting in 80 hours a week on the job. I spent five years processing crabs, she says. When it rained, I'd arrive with a dry pair of clothes and change when I got there. I need to work to take care of my kids. We're only using Anna's first name because she's undocumented and worries about immigration enforcement. She's a single mom with two kids. She says they always asked her why they couldn't have a car like so many other people. She says her son would say, oh God, mommy, I'm tired of walking. Why don't you buy a car? But she couldn't afford it and she knew she couldn't get a driver's license. But Anna saved for years to buy a car, believing the benefit was worth the risk of driving illegally. Finally, two years ago, she bought a Toyota Camry from 2011, the same year she arrived in the United States from Guatemala. There's a sticker saying, Yo amo Jesus on the front, and inside she keeps air fresheners and pink seat covers to keep the car feeling new. She says the car means a lot to her and her kids. Ana says her daughter told her, Mommy, when I grow up, I'm going to work a lot to give you everything because I asked you for a car and you bought us one. Ana still works in the fishing industry, packing lobsters at a plant in New Bedford. But now she commutes, picks her kids up, takes them to appointments, and everything else life demands in her car. Whenever I get into my car, she says, I thank God because he gave me the opportunity to own a car. I waited a long time. Now the time has come, and I'm very happy. And now she's even happier because she'll be able to get a driver's license. Opponents of the law tried to repeal it on the ballot this week, but they lost in a close vote. On Election Day, voter Diane Gardner in Quincy said she had mixed feelings about undocumented residents having licenses. That's despite pleas from law enforcement chiefs who argued it would make the roads safer. I know that some of the police advocate for that, but it's like I'm afraid that that gives the undocumented that they have a license and they can vote, can't they? I don't think so. I don't know. I just had my license renewed and they said, oh good, now you can vote. What? I have been voting my whole life. What do you mean? Now I can vote? That echoes an argument spread by opponents of the driver's license law. But the law requires the Registry of Motor Vehicles to develop policies to ensure undocumented people are not automatically registered to vote when they get a license. Adrian Ventura is a workers' rights organizer in New Bedford who's been calling for the driver's license change for 17 years. He says he's not surprised it was such a close vote, attributing it to misinformation around voter fraud and animosity against immigrants. Of course, Ventura said, they want to see us walking around. They want to see us lower than them. But the most important thing we have to remind them is that during the pandemic, it was us who put food on their tables. And Ventura says to do that, people need cars. 
now that it's cleared the legislature, survived the governor's veto and the will of Massachusetts voters, the driver's license law goes into place July 1st. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simon Rios. This is 90.9 WBMR. Coming up, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at how the midterm election results known so far may impact federal plans to address inflation. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com slash careers. Democracy is who we are. As the dust settles from the 2022 midterms, we look at what the results mean for President Biden's policies and his decision about whether to run again in 2024. Our intention is to run again. That's been our intention regardless of what the outcome of this election was. That's this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Mid to upper 60s today and windy under sunny skies. Partly cloudy tonight in the low 50s. Tomorrow we'll have a cloudy Veterans Day near 70 degrees with a chance of rain in the evening. It's 51 degrees right now in Boston at 851. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series. Broadway's Jessica Vosk pays tribute to Sondheim, Judy Garland, Elton John, and more. November 11th at Symphony Hall. CelebritySeries.org. And Independent Education Group, guiding families seeking private and therapeutic school admissions and student academic advising. More at IndependentEducationGroup.com. Billions vanished in this week's cryptocurrency shipwreck. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business is dedicated to simplifying the process of buying supplies. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. FTX, one of the biggest exchanges for digital financial assets, is said to be insolvent this morning after customers who smelled trouble tried to pull out their money en masse. The founder is looking for billions to keep it afloat after a rival called Binance pulled out of a rescue bid amid published reports that customer funds at FTX might have been mishandled and investigations by U.S. regulators. Brian Doherty is Global Public Policy Director at the Bitcoin Association. Good to have you. Thank you, David. I really appreciate the time this morning. What's your sense of what sparked the initial, let's call it the run on the bank at this FTX? Well, I think. You know, honestly, a lot of these cryptocurrencies are just built on a house of cards. They're over leveraged. They're derivatives of derivatives. And basically, the technology themselves are vaporware tokens where backdoors and bad coding are features and not bugs. I think, you know, really what started this liquidity issue has been just a combination of different things, everything from unenforced laws and regulations on speculative assets. You know, what I consider the crypto casino is about to take billions of dollars of losses, over $8 billion. 
So I hear in your voice a worry about a contagion effect, that this is not just about FTX. Cryptocurrency investment, you know, ecosystem that has existed up to this point, as we saw with a lot of institutional investment into the space since, you know, really 2018, 2019, and then everything that had happened with COVID, you had a lot of investment into cryptocurrencies. And that was well beyond just those that had typically been in the space and a lot more to deal with companies. And, you know, this is one of the things I guess I would relate to this is that these type of occurrences really kind of come at the expense of real blockchain utility. It's almost like a car crash on the side of the road that nobody can take their eyes away from. But the real digital transformation capabilities are really in the underlying technology. For those who put money into FTX, and some will be regular folks, I mean, some of the ads were very retail, starring, for instance, comedian Larry David, among others. They could be out of luck with this FTX collapse. I mean, there's no federal deposit insurance bailout for this sort of thing. You're absolutely right. You know, there's going to be a lot of, you know, investors, consumers and lenders that are really going to be hurting, especially as we go into this very difficult financial, you know, global economy that we see difficulties pop in almost every industry and sector now. Ryan Doherty is Global Public Policy Director at the Bitcoin Association, which is focused on Bitcoin SV. Thank you very much. Thank you. You have a great day. Bitcoin's value is down another 2% right now, down 17% this week. And we have the latest reading on inflation just now. Consumer prices went up four-tenths of a percent September to October. That means they're up 7.7% in a year. Prices still rising, clearly, but not as fast as expected. So maybe some cooling with the higher interest rates. This news drove stock index futures up sharply. NASDAQ futures up 3.8%. Dow futures are also suggesting yesterday's losses will be erased, up 2.4%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to clients' long-term goals. FisherInvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. And by Hangry, a new memoir by Grubhub founder Mike Evans about the journey of creating a multi-billion dollar startup from scratch. Hangry is available as audio, ebook, and in local bookstores. With votes still being counted, we still can't say who will control the Senate, although the numbers for the House are leaning Republican. With divided government, what happens to economic policy? Let's consult Desmond Lockman, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a conservative think tank. Welcome. Thanks for inviting me. So many voters had inflation on their minds on Tuesday. In what ways do you see the approach to this problem of inflation in Washington perhaps changing now? Certainly the electorate, they said it was very high on their agenda, but when they voted, it looked like they took other matters into account. You would have thought that with inflation running at a 40-year high, with the economy already showing signs of slowing, you would have thought that the economy would have triumphed. But there remains this problem of inflation and approaches to it. Do you think the this divided government that we seem set to to have will lead to a different approach to solving that problem? Well, the truth of the matter is that the administration has limited possibility of dealing with the inflation issue. 
the main burden of dealing with the inflation issue is the Federal Reserve through its interest rate policy. So that doesn't change, but perhaps the Federal Reserve will be now subject to a lot more criticism as the economy turns down. But it's really going to be high interest rates slowing the economy that is going to bring the inflation back towards the Federal Reserve's target. Right. And you alluded to the other problem that the new Congress may be facing next year. I don't know if we'll be in a recession. Nine out of 10 CEOs surveyed think one is on the way for next year. Do you think this divided government will change its approach to what we do about stimulus? Absolutely. That's where I see one of the dangers of the current political situation is it looks like the United States economy, because of the high interest rates, is going to go into a recession. That's the way one's going to bring the inflation down. But if one has a divided Congress and one's got a Republican Party that is of the more extreme variety, then the chances of getting an adequate stimulus are diminished. And that means that the recession could be difficult to deal with. Desmond Lockman is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Thank you very much. Good to talk to you. Tomorrow, hear a view on the election results from the liberal-leaning think tank, now called the Roosevelt Forward. Roosevelt Forward is the new name. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio, Marketplace Morning Report. May PM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. It'll be sunny, windy, and we'll have mid-60s today, partly cloudy and low 50s tonight. Friday starts with patchy fog, then it'll be cloudy and near 70 degrees. There's a chance of rain toward nighttime, and the showers may continue into Saturday morning. Right now, it's 52 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 9 o'clock. The BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental of Massachusetts, passionate about improving oral health across the state and reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Visiting your dentist and taking care of your mouth could help protect your heart health and much more. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. Hospitals are being overwhelmed by children sick with RSV. The surge of patients, the influx of patients, patients waiting to get beds, the demand on the system, it feels very much like 2020. What is respiratory syncytial virus? And why is this usually mild illness surging now? How can it be contained? We'll talk about it on Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.